30 years, I've been looking for something I was told couldn't possibly exist. An advanced human civilization much older than our own, lost to history. The mainstream version of history says that after the end of the Ice Age, on their own initiative, our hunter-gatherer ancestors suddenly began farming and raising livestock, creating settlements and eventually cities until the first civilizations emerged around 6,000 years ago. But new discoveries keep on pushing that horizon back. One such discovery has been made here in Indonesia. On the most populated island, Java, about four hours south of Jakarta, near the village of Karya Mukti. I've come here to investigate one of the most remarkable and controversial archaeological discoveries of our time. The initial evidence has utterly confounded mainstream archaeologists because it calls into question everything they've taught us about the prehistory of humanity. It's a site that raises a disturbing question. What if an advanced civilization flourished here in Indonesia during the Ice Age? A civilization that was lost to history until now. This is Gunung Padang. The name means mountain of light or mountain of enlightenment in the local Sundanese dialect. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to another Wet Wired. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. So this is the first episode of our new Seat of Our Pants schedule, and we may at some point get back to some kind of routine. But right now, this looser approach is really working much better for us. We are excited to be joined by repeat guest, the wonderful Steph Holmhofer, and first-time guest and new friend of the show, Dr. Bill Farley. So, Steph, you're probably already very familiar to our regular listeners, but we do have some new people. So <laughs> could you catch us up a little bit about what you've been working on? Yeah. So for folks who don't know me, I am a PhD student at the University of Alberta, uh, and I research. Uh, a little bit of everything that's kind of all connected. It's um, basically I look at the archaeology of far right conspirituality, um, but how especially how they use pseudo archaeology to like inform and justify um, their beliefs. And and a lot of my research is focused on a 1920s community who were um, Atlantis people. They, they claim all their knowledge came from Atlantis um, and they built their settlements in British Columbia. And, and so I'm really interested in them. But I also look at like contemporary things. Um, how contemporary groups use conspirituality or uh, use pseudo-archaeology in their conspirituality or non-conspiritual far-right people too. Just how, what does pseudo-archaeology mean for them? How do they use it? What do they do with it? That kind of thing. Bill, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in learning more about your background. Could you tell us a little bit about this yourself and what you work on? Sure. Yeah. I, 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 um, I'm an archaeologist as well. Uh, and um, I, I, sometimes I talk about having kind of a kind of a day job archaeology and a sort of after hours archaeology job. Uh, and nobody has ever heard of me in the day job part, which is uh, I, I, I do um, the archaeology of 
17th and 18th century historical archaeology in New England, particularly looking at uh, interactions between uh, indigenous people and um, and settler colonial uh, uh, folks uh, in those sort of earliest years, um, especially in in Connecticut. And I, I'm a professor at a um, at Southern Connecticut State University, which is a regional public university uh, in a great a great school here in in Connecticut. And uh, I, I finished my PhD in 2017 um, studying studying those things. But the the way that I've come to this is really just a couple of years ago during the pandemic, I, uh, I got, I was looking for ways to interact artistically, uh, express myself. I don't anything, right? Like all of us, I was looking for some sort of an out to those sort of things. Uh, and I, and I got interested in, in archeology span and media archeology span as it's represented sort of in pop culture and, and, and media and social media, uh, and started just making sort of YouTube videos about archeology span in those spaces, particularly in games, video games and movies and television shows. Uh, and that, um, as I'm sure at some point will probably come up, um, all those spaces, you, you inevitably bump up against the, against this idea of pseudo archaeology and and representations of archaeology in ways that are uh, uh, not so good and can be really damaging and uh, and dangerous and harmful. Uh, and so I became increasingly interested in that and and just tried to be helpful in that space. And when I started to do that, uh, I had to. It's just this is just relevant to this. I really had to buff up on my background knowledge and started reading scholars on it. Uh, and that was actually how I came across Steph's work uh, and started reading some of that. And so it's quite cool to get to actually meet uh, uh, Steph to, today for the first time uh, virtually um, because, uh, uh, you know, one of the one of the big voices actually in this space. So that research that you were talking about is, uh, is shockingly relevant to, I think, some of the things we're going to talk about today. So, uh, so I do YouTube, I do social media kind of stuff, uh, particularly just looking at archaeology within the public sphere is, is what I'm interested in these days. That is awesome. That is definitely right up our alley. Yeah. You know, so thanks again, both of you, for talking with us today. It's really awesome to have you both here. It's a it's a real pleasure, and this is also the first time that we've had more than one guest at the same time. So this might be, I mean, it's it's going great so far. So let's uh, we might do this again. We 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 had our fingers <laughs> crossed about the uh, technological gulf between three and four people. Yeah, we didn't know if there was going to be an issue or not. So this, this will be the uh, the first wet wired symposium. <laughs> <laughs> to get right into it, I think my first questions are: Are why are archaeologists hiding the oldest pyramid in the world? Phenomenal uh. question. <laughs> and how long have each of you been part of the deep state? You know, so long. You know, we get we get that check every month, and uh, from George Soros, just like everybody else. I was just going to say, it comes from the same account that our Soros checks are coming from, and uh, and we do get a, we do get a Mercedes every year as well, so it's a good deal. So, <laughs> that's a joke, everybody. That's a joke, <laughs> right? This is all going to be like clipped out and used out of context where they they finally admit it. <laughs> Broke. <laughs> It'll be on Rumble in an hour. <laughs> Breaking news on the Daily Stormer. Archaeologists finally admit it. <laughs> All of our worst nightmares. <laughs> I want to take a minute to to frame out some of the context, you know, about like why I wanted to to have both of you come and talk with us, and then you know maybe we can get our hands a little bit dirty after that and and uh, pick some of these things apart. Essentially, a few weeks ago, a paper was published in the journal, a journal Archaeological Prospection. 
that talked about the Gunun Padang site in Indonesia that uh, and it being not, as is generally believed, around 2,000 years old, but closer or more than 20,000 years old. So this claim was first floated back in 2014. I think that was the first time, right? And by some of the same people. Yeah. And it was it was largely disregarded for a few reasons, mainly the the actual archaeology that was done, the techniques that were used. And it was also criticized by uh, for the fact that some of those techniques were really destructive. And it made it so that you couldn't go back and actually look at the same thing again because of how they did it. I've read the 2023 paper that came out as well, and it seems like largely, even though different techniques are being employed, its whole agenda is to really vindicate the 2014 results and saying that, like, yeah, even though without acknowledging that they did terrible archaeology, they were still right. And, you know, that's basically what they were doing because they come to exactly the same conclusions. And incidentally, this is also a site that was leaned on heavily by Graham Hancock to support his high-tech lost civilization, world-spanning, you know, Atlantean idea, so much so that it showed up in the very first episode. You know, that, that was the focus of the, you know, from the very beginning. So obviously, this is a, an extremely grabby claim. You know, they, there's a lot that they're, they're trying to, uh, to build off of with this evidence, you know, quote unquote evidence from Gunung Padang. One of the things that I wanted to get into was the way media has picked up on this first. You know, that's like the first place that I wanted to go. Even though I'm not asking questions, you too can feel free to jump in. There is no need for politeness. <laughs> Absolutely chime in or comment on top of me or anything like that. It's totally fine. And more than a few popular websites are like the entry point to how people learn about these things. Live Science, for example, really popular website. You know, their headline was long hidden pyramid, quote unquote pyramid. It's, a, you know, they, they, they do add that pyramid in quotes found in Indonesia was likely a temple. All right. The, the temple part, you know, that can be a, a word that can be interpreted different ways, but that's not so bad. You know, it was obviously a site that has had, you know, people using it for religious purposes. And we're even seeing Vice talking about this, this site. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Which Science not Alert. a small publication. Yeah. No. Yeah, Vice was the first one I saw, and their headline was actually less was wor worse than that. Yeah, I I have them on my list too. The uh, <laughs> the Science Alert, another one very much like Live Science, giant pyramid, no quotations around it this time, buried in Indonesia, could be the oldest in the world. So now it's a pyramid for sure. Mm -hmm. But they put the could in there doing some work about the dating. <laughs> some really heavy work. Could. It's a powerful. <laughs> I, I, I've noticed this about the ancient aliens things and and uh, all of these pseudoscience entertainment shows that they use the words could and maybe so heavily without ever making definite claims. And and that does so much. It's heavy always lifting. the way out. Yeah, it's always <laughs> the way out. Plausible deniability is very important. In, Absolutely. In the, because, you know, like the, the, they're just asking questions. They're just journalists kind of stuff is always a kind of first line of defense. I'll, I'll take us on the first tangent aliens? already. All right. Just, just to, to set the tone for you, Bill. Steph is used to this. But the, I'll, 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 I'll take us all on the first tangent. The plausible deniability is like, like, like was just said, is always heavily relied on. 
just this past weekend, a couple of days ago, with the riots that took place in Dublin, and how and how it's being revealed like systematically by people who have been by stitching these these social media threads together, how far right uh, social media personalities basically not just incited but created out of almost nothing the entire riot that that resulted in buildings being burned down, cars set on fire, and and oh, tens of thousands of people descending on Dublin, just causing like wreaking havoc throughout the city because they were fomenting all of this anti-immigrant anger against Algerians. And, and it was specifically a guy who committed a crime. It, it, it wasn't like a, a spree of dozens of individuals in some sort of a coordinated attack. It was a guy who committed a crime. Who happened to be Algerian? It, and then, they, and then and they he all was back- a, he was an Irish national. He was he was naturalized. And then That's they they Ireland. tried to back out of this by you know saying they never you know this isn't what they 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 were just talking about it you know they weren't you know they weren't trying to encourage any violence or anything like that. But this is you know that's an extreme example that is not that uncommon, especially when we're t- when you look at the the types of social media history and and internet history from essentially every mass shooter in the United States for the past five years. Everybody is is following people that lean heavily on could and might. It kind of comes mm-hmm. into like, oh, oh sorry, yeah, Seth, I don't know if you had something or if you Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say it. Like, I totally agree. I I was going to say, like, it's it's this um, with I think this is relevant back to what we were talking about before, too, because there's this kind of every every accusation is a is an admission thing happening here. Right. Which is which is um, I think the far right uh, or I I shouldn't say just the far right, but let's say uh, uh, people who are very conspiratorial minded. Right. They see conspiracies in everything. And I'm sure this is uh, this is something I've read about even in Steph Scott. Right. There's there's conspiracies in everything. So these are things that we've heard accusation. Oh, January 6th was incited by Antifa. And uh, and this this riot here was incited by Antifa did. Did did everybody you know? Uh, is George Soros in the room with you? You know, it's like that, that kind of that kind of uh, conspiratorial thinking. And when you when you blast the airwaves for that every single time. It makes it hard to make a case when that does seem to be what's actually happened somewhere, right? It's a wow, we really have a situation where we did have a kind of a false flag thing here, uh, but then you now have to be the kind of, you know, you have, you have to be always like a coming from this higher ground of of having to meticulously explain why this isn't actually a conspiracy that you've just made up because we've normalized that that our folks folks on the internet have normalized this that everything's a conspiracy all the time so that whenever if a conspiracy actually does happen it gets grouped right in with all these other uh, fake conspiracies so I don't know, it's uh, th- this is why yeah if, if your television shows about archaeology people ask all the time well why do we really care right why do you think this is dangerous why is this why is this important it's just it's just just archaeology it's just not that important it's like well one of the ways is that it just it just feeds into this environment of conspiratorial thinking uh which makes it really hard to recognize um actual conspiracies when they actually happen <laughs> well that's really a trouble nuance doesn't sell it, when when you say something confidently like graham hancock and and you say despite the maybes and could be's the, the way that it's presented is nevertheless with a sort of absolutism about what's happening here. And when you try to tease apart and, and, and really pull at the threads in, in some sort of a responsible way, that's going to take an extra 10 pages. 
And that it, that's just not a, a very catchy way to convey your ideas. Meanwhile, um, uh, meanwhile, if you're if you're over here saying, "Oh, it was definitely aliens," that <laughs> sounds great. It's the only explanation. <laughs> Interestingly, the paper we're going to be talking about, I think, a little bit today, uh, uh, it d- does does not mince words. They're quite confident in their conclusions, um, despite of uh, fifteen pages of waffle that comes before it. When it comes time for the conclusions, poof, they hit you with the yep. Right in the title, it's a, it's a pyramid. <laughs> it is a pyramid, but, and the dates are remarkable. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, out of all this, oddly enough, the uh, the the website Atlas Obscura, which is you know typically just a fun site to learn about odd, out of the way places that nobody's ever going to visit. They were so much more even handed than any of these other websites, and that's not even what they do. You know, they, they were they, they they state very clearly that that the results need to be replicated before any conclusion should be accepted. There is stone throw from some kind of a travel <laughs> buzzfeed. Right. Exactly. It's like Lonely Planet for people who don't ever leave their couch. <laughs> you know, I know I'm, 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 I'm probably talking to everybody. Tell me to shut up if I'm talking too much. But this just reminds me, you know, everybody goes into Thanksgiving and you're going to have like a like a heated debate at the table or something like that. Actually, I ended up having a super interesting conversation. I was talking to um, um, uh, a friend of mine, a family member, actually, who who is a who is a journalist who works in, in journalism and uh, public relations and has worked for newspapers and all this sort of stuff. And we got into a really interesting conversation because he had watched my video about this this paper and seen some of the stuff that I talked about and you know just asked me about it and we got chatting and I, I just started picked his brain I was like what is going on with science journalism like what how are they dropping the ball this hard seemingly every time and you just get these articles I had some idea but he it, it was really interesting to hear his perspective from somebody who comes from that world and the labor pressures that are there and the uh, you know the, the the need for clickbait and the the, the kind of um, pressures that are coming down from from newsrooms to to produce he's just like there's just not time and especially with science journalism where there's so much years of expertise that's really sometimes needed to understand that nuance that you were mentioning before Jules like right like to even understand the nuance in a paper like this um, takes time right it takes it takes uh, experience and no science journalist has that about um, uh, you know maybe more than one or two fields and they've got one science journalism covering everything and they're you know so they're covering uh, meteors and they're covering uh, I don't know sociology and and archaeology so they just they see it they see it they rely on they see that peer-reviewed this is a peer-reviewed paper it must be legit which we all know is not always true uh, and and so he, he was not he basically was like, I, I'm not surprised. Like this is this is this is um, um, not shocking that the that the media uh, companies like sort of dropped the ball on this and were very credulous in their coverage of this of this paper. Excuse me, because because a lot of stuff that's probably outside the control of the actual journalist who were who were <laughs> trying to write that article in 15 minutes or something like that. Right, and I and I think you'd also end up with journalism that is w- with articles written based off of other articles. And rather than even reading the paper or, or talking to somebody else outside of the, re- of the research involved in the paper, which used to be a really common practice and getting a comment from somebody else, you know, from an expert in the area who can read the paper and understand it. And a lot of these articles do not have those outside comments from somebody who wasn't involved in the research. And these articles are typically not even speaking 
necessarily with the people who were involved in in the paper. So they're just reading the paper and writing a few words that sound pretty good and catchy. And uh, you've got some kind of a nice teaser and hopefully you don't bury the lead. And 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 that is going to get your your article in front of people's eyes and and sell the paper or digital publication or whatever it is and get views and clicks and, and shares and all that sort of a thing. But these people aren't even having the time to actually interview necessarily in many cases, interview the people who wrote the fucking paper in the first place. Uh, the people who did the research on the ground that could actually enlighten them about what is happening here. So we have a fork in that, that's in front of us right now that I'm seeing where we could, uh, we could talk about how Google and social media have ruined the internet (laughs) 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 and, and journalism. (laughs) um, But I, 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 I want to go in the other direction and I want to talk about the paper. And I was wondering, Bill, since you've uh, you've already covered this extensively, if you would uh, be willing to give us an overview of the, of not a, we judge as paper and 2023 one at least. And, you know, just talk about in, in you know a, a summary, just as brief as you want to be about the evidence they present and your 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 uh, takeaways from it. Yeah, my my um. I, so I, I approached this. I wanted to try and make a video about this really fast because uh because uh because I knew that this was going to get media coverage and um and I was hoping there would be things so when people when people uh, search for you know type in like Indonesian pyramid or something they get something there that's going to have a critical perspective beyond just the headlines in the news and, uh, and, and, uh, and the, the pseudo archeology span YouTubers who somehow uh, produce videos at lightning sp- uh, fast, quick speeds. It's because they don't have to do any research. Uh, and so I, <laughs> I, 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 went, I, I read through the, I read the, so I sat down and I read the article and, and uh, the first thing I'll say is that the article is uh, uh, quite difficult to read. And I, it's, it's really, um, it's a really technically uh, jargon rich experience uh so the, the you were we were speaking before about uh, that like sort of use of language and and um uh, and whether a, like a science journalist could really read this paper i doubt many science journalists could read this paper uh and because it's really um like sort of obfuscating in that way uh and and so maybe they did just read the headline and run with it because they didn't really have the ability to to analyze it but the actual details of the paper are the 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 authors are talking about this site in in Indonesia, uh, Gunung Padang, which is a really cool site built on top of a uh, on top of a volcanic sort of geological feature, uh, and that's relevant because the the geology of the site is is uh, to a geologist to a volcanologist or a, 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 a geologist not that unusual, but it's got some weird geology because it's on top of this volcano, and the authors essentially wanted to wanted to ask a question I think is a legitimate hypothesis was, all right, we're, we did some ground penetrating radar and such. And there's, there's these sort of void spaces down below the site, which uh, geologists say are a pretty common feature um, uh, in these kind of volcanic sites. Uh, but they wanted to know, maybe there's some earlier components of the site down there. So let's go, we're going to, we want to see if we can see them uh, and, and see if we can see them. And in my opinion, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to test archeologically. Sure. Go for it. Uh, and so what they did was they did a bunch of geological techniques and, and, and it's okay. If, if I'm sort of wrong about any of this, if there's Steph has corrections for this, please do. Cause like I said, I was trying to move part of this was like, I was moving real quick, but I think I got most of the, most of the highlights. Uh, they, they, um, but they couldn't, 
I don't know if they couldn't or if they chose not to, but they didn't really seem to have the option to do extensive archaeological excavations. Like they couldn't get down there and really dig, it seems like, or, or at least they didn't. They, they either elected not to or they were not allowed to. Uh, maybe it was because of worries about destroying or damaging the site, like you mentioned earlier, Sean. Uh, but so instead they did a lot of geological prospection or prospecting uh, using techniques like ground penetrating radar and others that let you sort of look down into the ground without actually digging it up. And then they also did a lot of geological, maybe a lot, they did some geological coring, which is sounds fancy, but really is just like punching a, a thin core down into the ground so you can get sediments and then you can pull them up and you can look at them. Uh, and, uh, and they, uh, th- to be honest, they didn't really find much. They had some reflections and things in these in the geological prospection data that looked like they might be something under the ground that maybe you might want to explore with archaeology. Uh, and then um, in the geological cores, they f- they they pulled up from down in these void spaces these organic rich soils, and the organic rich soils had carbon in them, which you can radiocarbon date. So you can sometimes date uh, uh, soils if they have carbon in them with radiocarbon dating. And they dated that. And that's where they got these dates that were the big headline, 16 to 24,000 years old. They came from these, these organic-rich, carbon-rich soils uh, deep down in these uh, underneath the site. And so they proclaimed that there was, in fact, a buried pyramid underneath um, this site that dated to that date range. Based on the evidence that I just – they didn't give any evidence besides what I just told you. So they had soils – that were 20 or so thousand years old. And they had some reflections from and, and other things from, from uh, uh, remote sensing techniques that would normally absolutely have to be ground truth with archaeology to say anything about them uh, at all. And they, um, um, and I hopefully we'll, Steph will flesh this out in a minute because uh, um, that, that's getting outside of my expertise quite quickly. They had no artifacts. They have one artifact that they describe, a, a stone tool, lithic stone tool, which every lithicist I know uh, does not think is a real uh, artifact. And I don't think it looks like one either, um, though it's quite neat looking uh, and, and really nothing else. So the carbon that they dated, it's really important to know, is not an artifact. It's not anthropogenic. It's not, as far as we know, has no connection to human activity at all. It's geological soil. Uh, and so what they've dated is a geological layer that's 20,000 years old, but they haven't proven in any way that that's connected to any kind of human activity, which would make it an archaeological site. Uh, and so they just said, but in the paper, they they, that's, they just say, yep, it's a buried pyramid, like an intentionally buried pyramid. So it's there's this huge leap from the data, which is all fine. Um, although I've heard some serious criticisms about some of their geological techniques and methods. Um, but the data is like real. It just doesn't show what they say it shows, which is, so that's where the huge leap happens, I think. Um, but that, so that's my, that's my breakdown. Hopefully that explained it fairly, fairly quickly. <laughs> and do you want to add anything there, Steph? <laughs> no, like you're absolutely right. There's, that is a major issue with this paper is the disconnect between the conclusions and everything else, um, you know, you're you, they're talking about a, a buried pyramid and they had to core down through it to get these um, carbon samples like way deep down. So where are the, the megalith examples in the core? Like if you had to core down through it, shouldn't you have gone through a giant block in the pyramid? And that's not appearing in the core either. Just all this dirt. But then also what a lot of the... Um, 
media sort of glazed over is there's a whole section in this paper near the end, I think it's the second to last or the last before the conclusion, called Uncertainty of Geophysical Measurements, where the authors, to their credit, uh, sort of talk a little bit about some uncertainties with their data. You know, they're saying, yeah, we, you know, we pulled up all this stuff, but like, it might not say what we think it says. Like, they're fully acknowledging that here. And then all of a sudden, the next section, they're like, oh, but it's still a giant pyramid. Yeah. It, what? For, like, for reference, where is that jump? When, when we're talking about the these dates, because not everybody is necessarily familiar with uh, timelines of human history. The last glacial retreat is around uh, 11,600 years, uh, round off 12,000 12, years ago. And it is right after that that we find Gobleki Tepe, which was only discovered in the in the mid 90s, which is really the first site of some kind of megaliths that we're aware of. And we're dating that to to right after this period for the previous almost 200,000 years of, of the existence of our species. We have no evidence of such megaliths. And even before Gobleki Tepe, we had this this concept that uh, there's this progression right after settled concentrated agriculture in Mesopotamia around 6,000 years ago. And then after that, we were off, off to the races. And the, the idea that is being presented by Graham Hancock and by a bunch of others and, and why this dating of 16,000 or more years is so significant is that it would place it before literally any of this shit. By thousands of years, if it were true. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't have it no be evidence. cool if it was? But wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think for the, for the, for the non archaeologists, and one thing I find all the time with anybody who, who is not an archaeologist or works in this kind of field, is it's really hard to conceptualize time depth like this. It's hard, right? Like a, a, a thousand years doesn't sound like that so that much, but it really is a, a lot, right? Think, think about what was happening a thousand years ago to now, right? So you can, there's what, pretty easy techniques you can use to kind of put that in perspective. But the things to note about this date is, if you're not familiar with this stuff at all, is that 20,000-ish years ago, 16,000, that's a really long time ago. That puts us back way before, as you were saying, Jules, any of almost any archaeological site you've ever heard of in the entire world. The second thing I think to note about it is that it perfectly aligns it with the hypotheses of ancient apocalypse and Graham Hancock's books, right? Uh, Because it does, it puts it in this last glacial maximum, it puts it in the Pleistocene, it puts it in the same time period as this supposed Atlantean super civilization, which is convenient, I would say, uh, in some ways. So that's that's where I think, those are the two things to kind of note about really, really long time ago. And conveniently, it makes the site work great within within Hancock's theory about that. Um, this is not to suggest that Graham Hancock is like some puppet master pulling the strings. He's not, but he's he's, <laughs> he's he's the most popular version, the most mainstream version of something that we see everywhere, all over the internet. So the the, the checks are are in the mail of the Indonesian Postal Service. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a whole nother. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't. A, a lot of people have asked me. Uh, and I don't know, you know, how much we want to talk about this or Steph has, but I, I, we haven't mentioned this yet is that the, the authors have been accused of, um, like sort of working under nationalist 
agendas essentially right they're essentially trying to create like a like a tourist destination here but i but it's hard to get people to talk about this I, like i know nothing about this because nobody wants to talk about it which is in itself a little bit weird uh but it's uh it's it's so that's something that i think we need to at least note in this long history of that in archaeology they would be far from the first uh but but it's uh but it's it's worth noting i think yeah indonesian journalists and archaeologists have been talking about that for almost a decade maybe even longer mm-hmm. um about the nationalist agenda behind this particular project and the the pyramid claims essentially being developed to support a nationalist um, story for Indonesia. And there's a, a great paper that really outlines, and some journalists have done it too, but really outlines that progression of this project and, and the involvement of the Indonesian government in creating it and promoting it and, and um, pumping it up. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter that the conclusions aren't of this particular paper aren't supported by the evidence because the evidence doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that story, that nationalist narrative. Um, and so that's why something that, like Bill was saying, something that needs to be acknowledged as well as that. Background. Steph, that, that segues perhaps perfectly. And Sean, stop me if I'm jumping too far ahead of this, but Oh, do what you want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so you, you co-wrote a paper that was published in the same journal uh, three days after this, this paper that we're talking about. So within three days by, by uh, mm-hmm. coincidence or serendipity or an act of God, who's to say it, it, it came out three days after this paper and it was criticizing the previous work, but also talking about communication. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, that paper? And then we have some specific questions about it, but. Um, uh oh. Uh oh. It sounds like a pop quiz. <laughs> you'll you'll be graded harshly, right. but it is on a bell curve. <laughs> oh, okay. Sweet. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, people say there is no coincidence, but sometimes there is coincidence. And this is one of those cases. Just the. Um, yeah, man, it's it's still funny to think about. We we got our our final like full acceptance of our paper, and then like then yeah, within the next day, either the next day or the very next day, one of my colleagues, my co-authors, messages the two of us, and he's like, um, "Look at this!" And it was the publication of this Ganung Padang paper, uh, and we recognized it right away because we had talked about Ganung Padang, and we had talked about that nationalist background of the project, and we had talked about. Um, that episode in Ancient Apocalypse, in our own paper, in the the original draft of our paper, we had actually a pretty long section about um, Ganung Padang. It was sort of one of our uh, singled out content analysis examples. Um, but during peer review of our paper, it was very strongly urged that we shorten that to make space for other stuff. So we ended up chunking out a whole bunch about Kanung Padang from our own paper. And then lo and behold, this, this other thing comes out. So in our own paper, we do still, we have a little bit in there about Kanung Padang, but not to the the level that we originally had that would have maybe shed a little bit of light on this other paper that came out. So yeah, our paper, uh, we talk about, we sort of go through um, what sort of might seem like disconnected examples. We talk about, um, media responses and disinformation surrounding uh, what are called Indian residential schools in Canada. Um, My colleagues and I do a a lot of work, especially my colleagues do a lot of work with residential schools and residential school survivors. So it's something we're very familiar with. Uh, So we talk about examples of disinformation from that uh, angle and then sort of compare and contrast a little bit to uh, ancient apocalypse and 
disinformation and ancient apocalypse to show that they seem to be disconnected examples, but the methods, the framework are all the same. And through that, uh, we encourage um, essentially learning about different communication methods, how we can improve our communication methods so that when we're always sort of prepared for things like the residential school disinformation or things like ancient apocalypse. Um, and so we looked at media responses, disinformation, far right responses to both. Uh, and we looked at how archaeologists responded to both as well and sort of talked about what kind of worked, what didn't work. And and that um, that's sort of in a nutshell is our paper. And then, yeah, a couple of days later, this Ganang Padang comes out, which is like a prime example of our paper in action, essentially, um, how to respond to it or what to almost do. It was, it was one of those situations where we're just like, should we just like send our paper again straight to the editors and be like, here, we have some suggestions on how to manage this new situation. Um, it was just, yeah, bizarre. bizarre and and I didn't, I didn't properly introduce it, by the way, the name of your paper is saying what we mean, meaning what we say, managing miscommunication in archeological prospection. And yeah, so we, we, Focused it on, on prospection because it's for a special issue of archaeological prospection. Um, but we s kind of hope that the advice we have in there is, is general enough to move beyond just examples of prospection to all sorts of examples of, of disinfo or or even just misinformation. Sometimes people get things wrong by accident. They're not being nefarious about it. So our, our ultimate goal or our point is just to be like, be prepared. If you're prepared for these things to happen, it's going to make you a better communicator anyway. But then if things do happen you kind of have an, a bit of an idea of, of what to do. And yeah. From, from the perspective of just, you know, random other archeologists, I, I, I really think this paper is super important and I, I don't think you have to worry about the, the applicability outside of, of, um, of prospection into more generalized archeology. span Cause I, I think the advice in here is really important and it's amazing to see it sort of written down uh, <laughs> so that it could easily be sort of shared around uh, because I think science, scientists in general, this isn't just an archeology span problem, but scientists in general kind of see themselves as some of them truly do believe that their work is, is like somehow apolitical, like true, truly apolitical, like, Oh, it's science. I don't need to worry about that stuff. I just put the information out there and whatever happens to it. It's not my, you know, it's, it's, I, I just put out the facts, you know, just the facts, ma'am. Um, but it's clear that that's not true. Even scientific research that can seem innocuous can sometimes be, um, can be uh, adopted towards uh, conspiratorial purposes, political, overtly political purposes, um, or just misconstrued, or as, as you were saying, stuff like, you know, not necessarily in a nefarious way. So this idea that scientists in general and archaeologists should plan ahead, you know, do that, do that research ahead to think about hard about how might our research be used by different groups? And how can we add some language or just be prepared to, to, uh, to um, address that super duper important. So I, I think this is great work, but it's also so interesting Steph, to hear that, that you did not know that these two papers were going to come out so close together. I, I was, I've been doing guesswork on this because I've been like, well, a lot, sometimes journals will do that, right? They'll have like two contrasting views on, on purpose in the same thing. And it's almost like a debate happening in the journal. And I, I, we were, I was looking at the release dates that were so close. I was like, I wonder, the, the editorial staff over there, some interesting choices in the last year is all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> they just put it all in a hat. Yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. Shake it around and see what comes out. Yeah. Yeah. We were very um, surprised to see it come out. Um, and 
we we had known that this paper was coming out um, or had caught wind of it a little bit ahead of when other folks started to catch wind of it by maybe like a week or so um, because it was so fresh in our mind. Like we literally got our acceptance and then the next day, boom, this thing comes out. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to go too much into it, but we did speak to the editors of the journal like right away um, and said, hey, you know, there's we want to talk to you a little bit about this or at least bring this to your attention type of thing. So um, the editors are, I appreciate what the editors are doing, um, how they're trying to sort of find ways to, to deal with it. And I'm hoping for updates soon. Uh, we haven't really heard much more since then, but they, they are dealing with it and they are looking into it, which is appreciated. Um, but yeah, it's, I think a lot of people have questions about how this slipped through peer review. There are elements of it, um, that, you know, go beyond typical peer review, like perhaps that nationalist background. It might not be somebody something somebody's familiar with, or even maybe somebody doesn't know who Graham Hancock is and doesn't know about ancient apocalypse or this connection. That You know, that's fine. That's beyond average or, or typical peer review. But within the paper itself, just that that dramatic disconnect between the conclusions and all the, the evidence and all the work that they, they did that's kind of I think that's worth asking some questions about is how did the reviewers overlook that uh, or or sort of come to terms with that? Um, and just even other things, too, like looking through the paper at some of the images, even they're like, I'm just scrolling up right now for some examples. Some of them are like just these weird collage type photos of these tiny little things with little tiny labels. And they're like, this is this and this is this and this is this. They're just like aesthetically poorly put together. And it reminds me actually a lot of like the YouTube, uh, the pseudo-arc YouTube videos where they're just flying through all these comparative type things. So uh, there's so many things in here that raise red flags if you know what red flags to look for. And that was sort of another point of our paper as well is that debunking is important, but it's not the most effective response in many cases. And that's where pre-bunking is actually more useful is teaching people ahead of time what red flags to look for, how to identify something as like, maybe we need to dig into this a little more, be a little more cautious about it. Um, when people are, are, you know, exposed to pre-bunking or go through pre-bunking or inoculation theories, people call it, they're less likely to take in these conspiracy, conspiracy theories to begin with, or they're, you know, a little more likely to be more cautious about sharing them. There's a lot of um, really interesting studies about that. So that's another point of our papers letting people know or saying, you know, maybe we need to sit down and think about some red flags, uh, even for journal editors too, to have like a list to collectively develop a list of something that maybe if a paper is submitted, here's a list of maybe some red flag type of things to to look into a little bit more. If this pops up, maybe we need to sort of think about maybe this. Maybe they have a laminated uh, infographic that's posted up uh, right next to the workers comp <laughs> thing in the office and uh, <laughs> exactly, and, and and all the other informational posters. In the, break room. Yeah, in the U.S. It would be like the OSHA board and the uh, and the <laughs> and the break room. <laughs> and it turns turns out the reviewers for uh, Nadawajaja were uh, their mother and uh, their best friend from grade school, and uh, uh, also somebody that they met at a bus stop who was uh, really nice that one time. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's just, yeah, there's so many red flags in here. If you know what red flags to look for, that just, I think it's worth asking some questions of the, the reviewers. The, Not necessarily identifying reviewers, but just sort of trying to understand what, those, what was going on with this. Those figures are bonkers. They I said are. that same thing. 
I ate same thing yeah, in my video. I said, great. they remind me almost the same thing you just said. Steph. They remind me of those like Facebook groups where there's like the big picture with like circles mm. and arrows and like, uh, and like, see proof. <laughs> they reminded me of a lot of that. And, and like, if they were trying to hide something, why would they have taken photos? If they were making it up, how did they get the photos? But when you look at the photos, you can, they convey nothing. You, you can't, there's no context. They're, they're totally illegible because they are so small and you don't actually learn anything from looking at those photos. All you can do is say, Oh, look, there's a bunch of brightly colored photos in this article. And then underneath you have to read the explanation for what these photos are. They don't themselves add anything to their explanation. It looks like one of those meme examples of uh, how Microsoft word is terrible at uh, formatting pictures. Like, like it, it looks like this jumble of, of images with no context as if it was a, it was a project that was handed in at the last minute in high school. Yeah. 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 And there are a lot of them. So many more than like your typical paper. Yeah, there really are. And none of them contribute anything to the article itself. Steph mentioned before, like the idea that, that this getting through peer review, I actually agree with you that I don't necessarily blame the peer reviewers for not catching that metatextual stuff because it's reasonable that people might not know about that stuff. Um, And I mean, again, going back to your paper, uh, we should know about that stuff. Uh, I think it's important that we educate ourselves on that, but but it's understandable to think that the peer reviewers might not have known that, but those figures are, were one of the hugest red flags in that a lot of times, they, they've got they've got text in there that describe things like where you're looking at this picture. This is trench, whatever, and then those those terms never show up in the text. So there's no way to uh, you can't no draw to, a line uh, between a paragraph or a sentence and to back to the images. Yeah, they don't go and back you, to it. Yeah, usually yeah. editors are really hard about that. Like it's like you, you your figures need to be clearly connected to the text. They need to be referenced within the text. They need to be, and I don't know that, that's that, that did not happen with this paper. So I think that was the most obvious red flag maybe. Yeah. We even in our paper, like we had reviewers commenting on some of the images that we included. um, And they're like, you know, why, why is this here? Maybe you should do this instead of that. Like they were actually really nitpicky about some of the images, um, especially the um, screenshots from like social media examples. Like some of the reviewers really didn't like that. And (laughs) which was, yeah, when the paper got accepted, then they're like, oh, I see you included those photos still. <laughs> yeah, we did, dude. <laughs> like, and, and we're directly, we are directly <laughs> we discussing these things. This is an example of what we're discussing. Right. Exactly. And, you know, at least in those images, you can read the social media comments. Like I'm looking again at uh, page 10 in this Ganang Padang paper where they've got um, images of the borehole descriptions. The text is literally not readable it's all like fuzzy and pixelated I, I and like that. that is like your core of your argument is these cores and you can't even the, read what the images are really low it. resolution which is wild because i have had editors yeah. pr- like frantically yelling at me because my photos were at 250 dpi instead of 300 dpi or whatever so it's just wild i don't know it's just, this this is so off track <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird like, this is they should have caught this stuff <laughs> Yeah, they, they definitely should have caught it. Um, and then, of course, I mean, uh, we haven't really even mentioned yet, like, uh, oh, the acknowledgement we're, we're, section I, of the got, paper. We are like, going to get up, there. Yeah, right? we are going to get there. I'm sure we're yeah. getting there. But, yeah, the yeah. acknowledgements area of this paper is, is yeah, really exactly. interesting. Um, but, you know, before we get mm. too much farther along, we're, we're talking about the, the challenges that 
people with a great deal of knowledge in these areas are having these, you know, people who are editing, the, who are editing and reviewing these papers and the challenges they have. And then, but, you know, earlier we were talking about the state of science journalism. And, and I, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that, you know, that if somebody who already has a great deal of experience in this area is, is having, tr- has trouble with it and misses these things, journalists, you know, like you were saying, Bill, and, you know, like when we were talking about the labor pressures, on on and then you know the content creation calendars that these people are, are living and dying by and the amount of time they have allotted to one particular piece like this that is just meant to just go out the door they're never going to get this they're never going to catch any of these red flags and you know you mentioned something Steph in your paper and it, Jules and I have spent more than t- more time than I would like to admit talking about extremely unlikely claims made by people and, you know, mo- and most of the time they don't add up to, they don't add any evidence at all, let alone bad evidence. And when people do back it up, they're often misapplying valid, a lot of times valid research, let alone research that might not be as valid. You know, like most of the time it's medical stuff, especially with, you know, in a, in a post COVID period or, you know, different COVID period. We're not post anything. The, but, you know, at, like during lockdowns and things like that, it was rampant, you know, to just misapply all kinds of medical research, obviously. I mean, people were, you know, eating fish paste and horse and horse medicine. <laughs> A lot of times it's also archaeology and sometimes it's even physics, you know, with physics that was, that was huge with the quantum consciousness people. This tendency is addressed in your, in your paper when you, you wrote that, um, Overly complex vocabulary is a barrier to comprehension outside of academic discourse. Um, archaeological prospection is rife with overly complex vernacular that many people skim read. However, these overly complex words are often where we attempt to communicate our interpretations and confidence in the findings. These issues contribute to the challenge of effectively presenting data observations and interpretations using scientific vocabulary, which can lead to potential misinterpretations. And Bill, you mentioned you mentioned something right along those lines in the in the beginning of your explainer video about Gunan Padang and this 2023 paper, where you were talking about the the specific type of language that was used. And in that case, it wasn't that it was over. You did mention that it was very dense, and the paper was very difficult to read. And I'm I'm glad to feel vindicated here. Like I felt like I was just out of practice, you know. Like I I don't I don't read nearly the, the number of scientific journals that I had to read when I was in school. And I, you know I thought maybe I'm just rusty here, but the but it was it was a tough read. And I I found some at, at some points I was actually reading it to myself out loud to make sure that I was I was keeping thing keeping my uh, keeping track of where of what was going on. But you mentioned the use of persuasive language. And specifically the adverbs that are just rife in this paper. I made the joke in the beginning about the the date was the dates were remarkable because that is part of their conclusions after they present, you know, all of the technical stuff. Like either one of you like to comment a little bit about any of those things? I could certainly jump in for a second on it. There's it's an interesting mix that I think you were just pointing out, Sean. And I think that's exactly right. That simultaneously the paper it uses um 
extremely dense language, which I very much agree with Steph and, and the findings in their paper that we, we have got to move away from that stuff. That is a, that is, so, we need to find ways to communicate, um, even, co- even complex information. Um, and, uh, but then they, they, they sprinkle into this, yeah, this persuasive language. You know, we did, we, we did this work meticulously. Uh, you know, the, the, the phenomenal findings, uh, groundbreaking findings, like, which is, weird really weird in an academic paper it feels weird to hit a word like that and i don't know some of this it could be just just the the writing quirks of the author or or if this is a, a paper was 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 uh, written in translation at some point i don't know all the details of that and maybe that does some of this but it um that language is a bit more reminiscent of what you might see in a an ancient apocalypse kind of show, right? That there's, there's a, there's a kind of a sense of them trying to sell you this information and scientific papers usually don't do that. They usually don't do that. They usually don't use persuasive language because the point is not to persuade your reader that you're right. The point is to give the reader the information and then they get to decide if it's right. You probably think it's right. And you probably think if you, if you present your case well enough, they will be convinced, but you're not using your, the language itself to try and persuade the person. And we see that here. And I, I, my, my, my wondering is that if this wasn't quite meticulously designed to kind of it kind if it, if it was designed to eke this paper through peer review, right. It, it ran that needle. The reason why this is, alarming this paper in particular compared to say i don't know other the, the, at least once every few months there's a there's a big pseudo-archaeology scandal and archaeologists get all up in arms and we talk about it for a while and we get to make videos that get a bunch of clicks uh or whatever that's 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 uh that's this this is kind of normal this one i think is more alarming because the reason i talked a lot about the journal and about editing and and uh and the role of peer review is that that's i think what makes this paper a problem for us going forward is because it has gone through peer review. It has now has that mark. The first time I heard about this paper was somebody on Twitter talking about how this redeemed Graham Hancock, right? So it's because, and that lends it authority. So, uh, and you guys were mentioning the pandemic earlier, right? We can, we can all think back to uh, disgraced ex-doctor Andrew Wakefield and his, you know, kind of peer reviewed successful paper about vaccines and autism and how, we are reaping the benefits of that bullshit all these years later. I can swear, right? Cause I've heard Jules. Jewel, Jewel <laughs> this is the wild west out uh, here. You know, we're all still, we're, we're, we're all still feeling the impacts of that all these, and I mean, <laughs> that paper was retracted. If you look it up now, it's got retracted in big red letters across it. It was, it has been debunked a million ways till Sunday. And yet, there are still so many people who to, who accept it as gospel because it went through peer review because it was in the Lancet because it was a journal article and, uh, and so that really that means that this information now has that stamp of approval no matter what happens from now on no matter how many podcasts we do no matter whether the paper gets retracted no matter it it, it, it kind of doesn't matter I, I think and that's uh, that's that's where uh, and so some of this language stuff might have been to try and make try to help make that happen. And it, and it, and it did, it seems to have. So maybe they're just shoving, shoving their foot in the door so they can get that on the next speaking tour with Hancock. <laughs> well, they've done, they've done Hancock a great <laughs> service here in, in this. And again, I don't know if that was the purpose, but they, they definitely have. Cause again, he gets these breathless, you know, he's redeemed. It's like, it's the same information you said in the show. So I don't think so, but <laughs> we have to address it. Graham Hancock's association with this specific paper, uh, uh can can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, about the what was it? It was a forward, right? That he that he wrote for this. 
No, no, no. He was he was acknowledged. He was thanked at the he end. Was, he was acknowledged. That's what it was. Yes. As a proofreader for the paper. Yeah. He he basically he edited it before they submitted it. Um, help them. And or hey, less maybe he's it. he's adding some of that great language uh, uh, with with superlatives and and adverbs. That crossed my mind, like in our own paper. While you were just talking about it, Bill, that crossed my mind too. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before. About you know that with with the the Hancock acknowledgement at the end of of this paper that he. You know, some of those adverbs might have been his doing. He might have recommended those things. That doesn't ex- that doesn't um, re- reduce in any way the concern that this made it through peer review with all of those things intact. Um, but it, it it could be the source of those things. You know, he can't really add anything when it comes to the technical material. You know, that, that's never been his forte. He's always relies on the work of others. I mean, he's he describes himself as a journalist, even though that gets buried over and over again, even though he keeps saying it, people don't care. They, they see him as an archaeologist and as a truth teller. The but the 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 way that he presents it, that like that, those conclusions could have been plucked straight out of fingerprints of the gods. Yeah, like they 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 belong in that kind of a work. There's a word that was used early on in in, uh, your paper, Steph, that that's I I had not heard before. But this mashup of words made perfect sense to me. Uh, I was hoping you could elaborate on this concept, pseudo archaeological colonialism, which I'd never heard that combination. Those Uh. two right together before. But definitely those two words separately in plenty of papers and discussions. Uh, what what did it mean in this context of what you were talking about in your paper? Yeah, so it, it's actually um, an idea, something I've been thinking about for like a really long time about how pseudo-archaeology is really just another form of, of colonialism because it's so it targets indigenous peoples around the world so often. And, you know, colonialism, people often think of it as, as taking over land and, and space, but it also can take over histories and, and intellect as well and, and stories. And so... Um, we were thinking about that with this paper, talking about how essentially they seek to use pseudo-archaeology to, to clear away this baggage of, of history from people, to, to clear that out, empty the space so they can start throwing in their own narratives and their own stories. So that's sort of what we mean by pseudo-archaeological colonialism is just essentially stealing and twisting and manipulating somebody's actual history into something it's not to support this um, this alternative narrative and and whatever else is being proposed. And we talked a lot about, you know, we even, uh, Bill had brought up word choices in um, persuasive language in this other paper. And, and that's something we touch on in ours as well when we talk about rhetoric, the power of rhetoric, because persuasive language is essentially just rhetoric, rhetorical choices. Um, and a lot of people don't want to or, or sort of don't think about the power that rhetoric has when we're writing papers um, and thinking about our, our word choices. Uh, it's always about the, well, it's the data that matters. And I think, you know, it's the same thing for this this other paper. No doubt the reviewers were just sort of looking at the data and didn't even you know think about these pers- particular persuasive language choices or rhetorical language choices. Um, and, and it does carry a lot of weight and a lot of power for the people who are looking for that kind of stuff as well. So, um, yeah, rhetoric is really, really important and, and rhetoric really feeds into this idea of, of pseudo or the power of pseudo archaeological uh, colonialism to take over spaces and, and histories and, and replace it. Uh, historically, archaeology 
has had uh, uh, it has had a, a uh, rather spotted past of uh, colonialism, specifically either a vanity project of wealthy individuals, either sending out their minions to go gather artifacts. Uh, I mean, right up until today with, with the, the head of Hobby Lobby or, or one of the CEOs. The CEO of Hobby Lobby, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> buying, <laughs> buying artifacts from uh, the Middle East on the black market. Or, or just being well-to-do and, and, and bored and, and going out and putting on a pith helmet and pretending to be uh, Indiana Jones, uh, whichever, whichever way you want to slice it, but a vanity mm-hmm. project of, of wealthy individuals. And uh, kind of related to that, then there's just simply the plunder by imperial nations. Uh, notably, all the shit that has been stolen is on display in in museums in the UK and other places. Can we have it back? Nope. We stole it fair and square. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and so I, it, it, it definitely has for the majority. I don't know if that's true, but for a large percentage of the existence of archaeology, it definitely has this colonial past to it. And and today we're we're still trying to work very hard uh at least serious archaeologists are are working to t- uh, treat it for the science that it is and to and to uh uh try to do things responsibly and and ethically and to figure out what those ethics look like which is a lot a lot of what your paper is talking about is what do those ethics look like we're only really talking about some of this stuff starting in the 90s in, in relation to indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. uh, as you pointed out somewhere halfway through. And uh, I, I mean, I, I guess one of the things that you discuss in that is uh, rhetoric and discussion, specifically that in order to communicate this to people, you have to format it, format this information, this data for the human mind. I, I, it's, it's, it's trying to get your printer to work with the drivers that you have on, on your computer, and it's never the right driver, even though you installed and uninstalled it. Well, we're trying to figure out what kind of drivers are going to work to communicate to the public who are not necessarily familiar with these words, or to the journals or pseudo-journals or just BuzzFeed articles that are going to pick this up so that at least those journalists are going to be able to pick apart some of these things with some kind of literacy or competence. Uh, I mean, that it, where, where does that, f- it, it's, it's almost like you have to deal with the irrationality of communication and the emotional parts of communication in order to connect these dots. And it's not just the data. How, how does that fit in with your paper and uh, some of the conclusions of how do we get there? How, how do we format it in this irrational way that humans think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, your driver example is fantastic because I fight with my printer's drivers all the time. I finally gave up and I just <laughs> wired in now. Um, yeah, that that is the eternal struggles. How do we communicate things effectively in a way that people can connect with um, and still understand um, what we're trying to say? And yeah, man, getting rid of jargon is the first thing because jargon is just a pain in the butt. People tend to use jargon because I think they think it makes them sound really intelligent, like they know what they're talking about. I hear a lot of jargon. And I My first thought is you don't know what you're talking about because you can't break it down for people outside of this very small niche of people who might understand what you're saying. So getting rid of jargon for sure is, is one aspect. Um, and 
yeah, being very clear and, and very upfront about what we're trying to say, and then also being willing to respond when we see things taken out of context, just jumping in, you know, we see we say something and we see it starting to maybe turn into something else, just being willing to like jump in and be like, hang on, that's not entirely true. Um, so that's something that we we try to to emphasize is that, you know, say what you mean for sure, but then be prepared to actually jump in and and correct some things or point out to some resources that might help people who might uh, to understand it, um, essentially just guide the way for people who don't understand this background, even for archaeologists. Um, like I am not an expert in prospection by any means. That side of things was very much my colleagues. I just contribute the curse knowledge. <laughs> um, so yeah, just like, just really being willing to break things down and, and, be storytellers. I mean, archaeologists are, are well equipped to be storytellers and we are excellent. Many of us are excellent storytellers. So, um, and that offers a, a way for people to connect with things and understand things a little bit more easily. So there's a lot of things, um, a lot of really good research out there on how to communicate and, and how to deal with things like this, especially from like the conspiracy theory side of, of things. Um, Pre-bunking being super, super useful as well. In this case, just teaching people ahead of time what to look for um, is really, really great. So a lot of different things to try, but yeah, just breaking things down, connecting with people and being willing to haul things back a little bit. If things start to twist a bit, I forget all the steps, but I remember in, uh, in IWW training that I've, that I've taken um, the, the wobbly union um, that, that one of the key things that you have to do when, when you're, working to form a union is predict and anticipate all of the things that are going to be the backlash uh, or questions or whatever kind of response could be a negative response to your activity and inoculate before it happens and, and prime mm -hmm. people to whom you're communicating uh, with, Hey, the boss is going to say this and maybe throw us a pizza party watch out for the pizza party. <clears throat> and then as soon as the pizza party happens, instead yep. of it being effective, it ends up backfiring on the boss because then, then everybody sees that you were mm -hmm. telling the truth or at least they, they're, 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 it, it validates what you were saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the, you know, we use this example in the, the paper of, of essentially a magic trick. When you know how the magic trick works, it loses its ability to deceive you. Um, so just, yeah, knowing how these magic tricks work to pull the wool over people's eyes and how certain language choices are going to be used to convince you of one thing or pull your attention off of this, like distract you and how people um, try to cast doubt on experts or archaeologists or whatever, just when you learn that stuff, it's yeah, the stuff isn't so magical after all. There, there was one term that I that as soon as I read it in this paper, I knew who wrote that section immediately, and it was stigmatized knowledge. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and and <laughs> yeah, I think people probably know what I wrote in this paper. Well, I didn't know the other authors, uh, but I, I, I recognized some things and, but I did notice this. I did not notice this before in, in our previous conversations, or maybe I wasn't paying attention. Um, but you broke down in the paper, five types of stigmatized knowledge. And, uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. that there's, uh, forgotten, ignored, 
uh, rejected, suppressed, and uh, superseded. And I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, even though we talk about it every time you come on, a little bit about persecuted knowledge and how it applies to, uh, I mean, this site and these papers, but how does it apply to pseudoarch? Yeah, so stigmatized knowledge. Uh, yeah, if people haven't listened to the the other um, chats we've had or, or any time I talk about pseudoarchaeology, I always talk about Michael Barkin's work and this idea of stigmatized knowledge. Because to me, that's the most characteristic aspect of pseudoarchaeology. That for me is what really defines something as pseudoarch, as opposed to just somebody misinterpreting something or or misrepresenting something. And those are the the claims of of archaeologists hiding truths or somebody hiding truths or suppressing truths. Um, and then Barkin also threw in this forgotten um, knowledge claim um, or type of stigmatized knowledge, which refers to this comes up a lot in Atlantis theories, and that's the idea that there is a forgotten period of uh, human history or something happened that caused people to forget about something else. Um, and, you know, people like Graham Hancock or, or the Flamaths or, or whoever's, especially in, in Atlantis type stuff, they're just trying to remind us of that forgotten chapter of human history. Um, so, yeah, those are the, the really characteristic claims that archaeologists are just trying to ruin everybody else's fun by hiding things or rejecting things or or whatnot. Um, and so that's, yeah, what you look for, for me at least, what I look for in in shows or books or YouTube videos or whatever. If I hear these claims start to pop up, that's like the first big red flag. And that tells me I need to sort of maybe take things with a little bit of grain of salt, uh, start to seek things out and, and dig a little bit deeper into something. Don't just take it at face value. Um, and so, yeah, we see that we saw a lot of stigmatized knowledge claims of various types popping up in the residential school denialist examples that we shared. Um, it's all over ancient apocalypse, every single episode, every other sentence. They're just a victim sort of, of, of the global uh, cabal of archaeologists claim. who are so well-funded. <laughs> that was damn mainstreams. That's right. You had an axe grinding at that show. Let me tell you. <laughs> he really did. He really did. Um, and, you know, he repeated these claims so often because he just constantly needs to remind the audience that, you know, archaeologists aren't to be trusted. That's part of his method of casting doubt. So he can slide something else in there is just constantly reminding people that there is this doubt we need to have on archaeologists because they're rejecting things or ignoring things or or whatever. So, yeah, we saw that pop up a lot in um ancient apocalypse and there weren't claims of, of stigmatization in the Ganung Padang paper itself, but looking at how it was yeah, used beyond that, that was one of um, our first concerns too. When my colleague uh, first shared this, this paper with us in our little group chat and we were just like, Oh shit. My first thought was like, Oh man, this is going to like totally be used. Give it a week. And it's going to wow. start to do the circuit uh, to legitimize Hancock's claims and, and all these other claims. And sure enough, that's exactly what started to happen within a week. We That is something we, we mentioned to the editors, like, hey, this is probably going to happen. Be prepared for it. Come up with some sort of management plan, essentially, like what we said in our paper. Uh, and then, yeah, that's exactly oh, yeah, I'm sure they've what been getting emails. to happen. And that's, it's in those <laughs> I'm responses. I'm sure they've been getting emails. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we're not the only ones who spoke to them. So... Yeah, and it was in those those broader uses of the paper where we started to see the stigmatization come in about archaeologists trying to crush this and shove it down and hide it. Um, my favorite ones were like this guy, I can't remember who it was, but this guy was saying that archaeologists were claiming that the authors had paid to publish their paper 
Yeah, because that's how it works. <laughs> to publish open access, you do have to pay an absurd amount of money. Um, if you're lucky, like our institution has an arrangement with this um, publishing house. So the, our, our university covers those highly expensive fees to publish open access. But um, otherwise, you are stuck paying out of pocket or out of grant if you want it to be open access like that that particular paper is. I don't know what kind of arrangement they have. So I mean, I you're going to have to, you're going to have to mortgage your yeah, second you or third mansion, Steph, in order to, to get here and, and, and pay for it without yeah. your institution paying for it. I mean, Bill, Bill, I mean, you're going to have to Bill, Bill send the Mercedes back. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it's thousands of dollars to publish open, open access that even in relatively small journals, thousands, really and it can be tens of thousands. If you're talking about a nature or something like that, or science, it's, it's, it's wild. All that is so this, this it's really, it's just getting me thinking so much in, in sort of, you know, my angle on this is the kind of um, public communication stuff and, and trying to think about how I can apply these ideas. And what I found really effective a lot of times, and I think it fits into what you're talking about here a lot, Steph, is um, the, de debunking. Well, we've spilled a lot of ink about how straight debunks are not a particularly effective way to convince people away from pseudo-archaeology. I think they serve a purpose. I think that, that people do it and that information's out there is not a bad thing, but it's, it's kind of like our mainline defense and it doesn't really work. I've often found that um, it's what's so more effective. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's, yeah. What tends to be more yeah. effective is recognizing ahead of time. Like you said, I think that's exactly right. Recognizing ahead of time, what are going to be, the things people criticize you for. I even did that in this video, in my video, where I knew as soon as I started talking about the language in the paper that people would accuse me of of saying, "Oh, you just don't want scientists to write for a public audience." I'm, I, I don't, you know, I don't have a PhD, so I can't understand what you scientists are talking about. And I was like, "No, no, no." The opposite is true here. This paper is like custom made to to exclude you. It's it's this is this is very difficult to read for somebody who is trained in this. No matter somebody who doesn't have tremendous amount of training, uh, but but I've I've often found that really one thing to be really effective is addressing things from an angle of like the kernel of truth. So we mentioned, we were talking before about like nationalism and archaeology and, you know, you definitely an accusation you're going to see come from, oh, the archaeologists are saying that this is a nationalist paper. Well, archaeology is a nationalist colonialist science. And like, that's, yeah, it is. Right. And so you, that you, our whole kind of complaint about it can be, can be shut down as just an example of, uh, of, of, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, accusing uh, others of what we're doing. So you need to be ready to talk about that. And a lot of archaeologists are uncomfortable talking about that because it means diving into the dirty laundry of our discipline, right? And talking about the long history of, of, of archaeologists working towards nationalist agendas in both really obvious and overt ways, like literally working for the government to produce propaganda uh, in like wartime or something. And, but also in subtler ways, somebody brought this up and I had a conversation about this a few weeks ago and it really got me thinking a lot about the history of like my own little mini sub discipline of like the historical archeology span of North America. And for many decades, that field was just dominated by archeologists talking about Plymouth, uh, Jamestown. It was all about these sort of foundational myths. And I don't, those archaeologists were not getting like paid by the government to do that. They were doing what they thought was interesting, which happened to align with the nationalist goals of the United States uh, to sort of prop up uh, colonialist myths and, and, uh, and founder founders myths, right? So they were the, the, the influence of their own nationalist ideals and uh, exposure to propaganda led to them making a choice to uphold nationalist ideas within archaeology, right? So if you can 
if you can give people nuance about that and, and, and admit that about archaeology and say, um, yeah, yeah, we, we have made those mistakes. And in some cases, we are still making those mistakes today. But also look at all of this these places where we're trying to do better and we're trying to, 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 to learn from those mistakes and do better in the future. And how much, how much, uh, uh, archeologists write and think and act on, uh, trying to, to improve those ethics. I've just found that that is a stronger argument to, to people because it does touch into that emotionality and it admits it, it comes from a place of, 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 um, of honesty and, and, uh, and, um, uh, humility. Right. And those things can, can create human connections with folks who might be otherwise exposed to this. Uh, and you can see people who are like hardcore, like, yeah, archeologists. I mean, sometimes they just say that stuff that's just untrue. And the, how many people have you heard say, wow, archeologists are hiding the truth because they'll lose grant funding. Like that's just absurd, right? That's like, you could just point out, like, that's not how grant funding works. That's silly. Like, like just get out of here with that. But, but for other things like, well, what about the Clovis first debate? You know, archaeologists were unwilling to change there. Yeah. If you go into it and say, yeah, yeah, here's here's the actual history of that. Not the weird little one sentence version you got from Graham Hancock. But the the here's what really happened with that. And it was ugly at times. And here's how, you know, we've 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 as a discipline really tried to address that and move on from that. You can actually change minds much more, much more powerfully, I think. I don't know. At least that's but that's that's a that's all just just anecdotal, essentially. But it seems seems to work better. That's why a hill, a hill I will die on is that we should not describe or define pseudo-archaeology as fake archaeology. I hear that all the time when people are like, what is pseudo-archaeology? Oh, it's fake archaeology. Or even like, it's so petty, but like the hyphen between pseudo and archaeology. I'm like, get rid of that hyphen. No, no, no. It's its own concept. It is, it's not fake archaeology in some degree or to some degree it is. And there are elements of it for sure. But Largely, it is elements and and pieces of real archaeology that are just being applied in a different narrative and a different context, which is why narrative is also far more powerful as well. Within it's what gives pseudo archaeology its power. I have this whole book chapter coming out at some point about that. Um, but yeah, I will die on that hill that that it is incorrect to describe or define pseudo arch as fake archaeology. But you're not you're not dying on uh, the hill of Gunung Padang. You're dying on this specific hill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a, yeah, real hill. Sure, a real hill. Just make well, sure it works. Gunung Padang is really a hill. <laughs> it is really a hill. Not You're right. A pyramid-shaped hill. <laughs> no, at least the ones in Bosnia are shaped like pyramids. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, you know, I I I wanted to mention something, Bill, about you because I I did I watched your Clovis video and I was I and the, I mean. So I, my undergrad is in archaeology and the, and so I remember when I was in school, and it just made me reflect about how, how much um, some of my professors had dug in their heels about this, because at that point, they were still not willing to concede. And this wasn't that long ago. You know, this was maybe 20 years ago. And 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 you also mentioned uh, uh, Mesa Verde in that, and that was presented as just the, the loosest of possibilities at that point. And and we're talking, I don't know, two thousand eight, <laughs> and, and this is this is something that other people had been, you know, like I came away from those experiences thinking until much later that this was still, you know, sort of like skeptical, like I should be skeptical about this, while most people, for them, it was already established. You know, and I definitely had uh, some very old school people. <laughs> they, uh, 
They were there. And, but it just, it, it made me think about how people do, they, they get entrenched in the worldview that they have and they are often very unwilling to change. And when we're talking, um, and these changes can often be very scary, you know, the, because liter- the, literally the ground underneath their feet is being removed and it's being, the terrain's getting adjusted as they're standing on it. And that's something that people aren't comfortable with. And I think that it's something that they're, and I'm not trying to be ageist about this, but depending on where somebody is in their, at their career, especially if they're toward the end of it, they, they, they begin to lose relevance because they've spent the entire time talking about the thing in a particular light. And now it's different based on the new things that have been discovered. The, you know, so I think those are some of the, um, Th- those that's the the source of some of this resistance you know that that we get in a lot of places and when you know and obviously there's a lot of other ty- less sources for resistance there's a lot of other motivations you know that are going to cause somebody to to back something in light even in spite of contradictory evidence you know when i think about the um you know what's been called the salutrian hypothesis and you know the that Europeans came over to North America across the Atlantic. I, I forget what the time frame is. The you know, but along in prehistory, like twenty two thousand years ago or something. Like that. is what we're talking about here. That same kind of end of the Pleistocene, beginning of the Holocene. Right. That's, a, that's not. It's very hot right now. It's very in right now. And, and, <laughs> right. Yeah, we all love talking about that. You know, like, well, what if it happened in the Ice Age? Yeah. You know, this is something that I think people were initially incredibly legitimately exploring. I mean, there was it was a real question that people had. There seemed to be some things there worth looking at. And then over time and exploration didn't seem like there was as much there as there was when they were thinking about it at first. But the people who still hold on to this now, they have motives because this is a really popular idea among white nationalists. And they love it because it gives them that foothold in North America so early on before the colonial period here on this continent that they can say like, well, we were here too. We're indigenous. And that's, that's something that they, they like that. You know, that's something that makes people, makes them feel good for one reason or another. And you get into, you know, dicey territory trying to understand somebody's, uh, you know, the inner workings of their minds about what they like about that exactly. But you can look at the things that they write and say that they, and it's clear that they do like it, (laughs) you know, like, and, you know, so it just, it makes me think about the, you know, I I don't suppose I have some broader point to make or anything about this, but it it does, it, it just, it makes me think about how complicated this, the, the contours of this whole situation, you know, really are that there are so many different motives why somebody people, somebody could come to, uh, you know, come out and argue in favor of one thing versus another or dispute something versus another. And, you know, it does move. I, I'm moving myself along, I guess, in my own in my, in my own outline here to, you know, some things that we've already talked about. But the the idea of nationalism and Indonesia as a possible motive. And, and Steph, you mentioned a, uh, a paper. Do you remember the author of that paper? Yeah, let me bring it up. We can share it around afterwards because I'd like to give that a read. (laughs) Because we'll we'll include it in the show in the episode description. You know, like we we'd like to throw things in there that we've talked about so that people can can do some reading if they're interested. Because I came across uh, a a, what seems to be a very good paper from uh, from a woman named Dion Sulistiowati at the University of Indonesia. She's an archaeologist there. 
That's exactly the one I just oh, linked everybody awesome. here in the, All right. the so chat. That's, that's, the, the one. that's it. So this paper is called Indonesia's Own Quote Pyramid, The Imagined Past and Nationalism of Ganun Padang. It is a it was a fantastic overview of the history of the develop of the use of nationalism in the post-colonial period in Indonesia to basically fabricate a national identity. I mean, obviously, this is the purpose of nationalism to have that cohesion. But in this case, you know, in a lot of cases, and it was the same case with the Bosnian pyramids as well, it's to entrench that nationalist identity in mythical origins. You know, it, be, it takes up something, you know, you take this site that is magnificent and without any of the fantasy about Gunung Padang, it is, it is a very interesting th- site. Some, a lot of things were going on there a long time ago. It, it pushes back, you know, like the, the activity in the area. Those was a, these were big works that were being done. And there was organization involved. You know, you don't know about the necessarily the background of the people that did those things. All of the real history, and we've talked about this, obviously, Steph, in the past, all of the real history of these, of these peoples gets washed away because it was, a, you know, it was an earth spanning civilization that, you know, and this is just one more outpost. This paper you know, talked about the like going from Sukarno through up until the present period and the different motivations that people have had to to um, emphasize these this mythical background. I know we've mentioned Graham Hancock as a proofreader on that paper. I read that when I read that section and I spotted it because actually you identified it for the for me first, Bill. I didn't know about it until I got there in the paper. I did like the Metal Gear Solid, like exclamation mark sound effect in the video. That was the sound I heard in my head. What? (laughs) Right after uh, acknowledging Hancock's contribution, they mention a guy named Peter Lanzarone or Lanzaroni. This is not somebody I know. And because I didn't know who it was, I thought, who is this guy? So I found his LinkedIn profile, and it turns out that he's a he's a geophysicist who works for BP. Well, that's an interesting connection. Again, you know, this is not a smoking gun of anything, but it is curious that the current president of Indonesia, um, Widodo, recently also recently announced a four point eight billion dollar BP lit- liquid natural gas contract. You know, mm-hmm. Jules and I were joking about this before we started recording, and I just think of this as like. I guess if there is some sort of a connection, I mean, it's it's got to be the loosest of all things, but it's like a BP good neighbors policy. Like, oh, yeah, we have we have a geophysicist that can look at your paper. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we, the- <laughs> we we keep them in the back uh, just for occasions like this. Hold on. Let me let me get one out for you. Well, and I don't mean to besmirch <laughs> this guy. I don't know anything about him. I don't know what his involvement was, but it is odd coincidence that this is not work that he does. He does resource location. And I, you know, he identifies places. You know, uh, he works in deep water drilling. Typically, why would somebody whose stated focus of deep water drilling find themselves involved in the, you know, a paper for an archaeological site in Indonesia? You know, if it wasn't a BP connection, it's 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 not wildly unusual for archaeologists to work in interdisciplinary ways, and sometimes with folks in industry, and and especially if they've got special expertise. So, uh, you know, it, it's not it's not impossible that this is above board. Uh, although it's a little bit weird because I think the geophysical techniques they're doing in this paper are not. I don't know, Steph. Maybe you'd know better than me. They're not that complicated. Like this is pretty standard, fair stuff. Um, and um, and so to bring in an a, a, a geophysicist, a geophysicist, yeah, from a totally different field. 
when they're already publishing this paper in a, a, a geoprospecting journal, like this is supposed to be the authors themselves, I think would have had the expertise they needed in this. It's, it's a little weird. It's, there's, there's, again, going back to your point from earlier stuff in, in your guys' paper, red flags, right? They're just red flags. And it's worth, you, you chase them down, maybe some of them turn, and then be earnest about where, honest about where they go. Um, but it, it's it's weird. It's a one one of many red flags. <laughs> we need some degree of scientific or yeah. scientific and media literacy to be able to digest what's happening here and to critically, critically evaluate when we come across articles in uh in science or nature or wherever we're coming or if it's buzzfeed uh or uh something like that where wherever we're coming across these articles to be able to understand uh that when claims are being made and they're using adverbs and and superlatives and when claims are being made that sound pretty outrageous they might be outrageous but to be able to go down the rabbit hole and and ask who are the people involved in this and why are they involved in it i mean archaeologists and archaeology doesn't exist these things don't exist in a in a vacuum it's not it's not on an island it's not laura croft out here jumping through uh abandoned temples or something like that all alone uh, it's it it's it's a whole community, not only of of the scientists involved, but a community of of journalists and the interrelationship between these these communities and how they are being, um, their communications are rippling out into the to the to the broader consciousness and and understanding of what reality is and what our history is as a species and so forth. Yeah, as uh, I I think um um. Uh, that that seems sort of a theme of this whole discussion. I think this idea that, uh, that it's archaeologists really need, and I know this is a focus of a lot of Steph's work, like archaeologists really need to need to realize the political impact of their work. And I think about like the stuff I've been doing the last couple of years, making videos and then going on social media. Um, Oh my gosh, my, I have my, uh, that shut down and it's still happening anyway. I don't really know why. Um, and, uh, so excuse that the dingle, that was me there. Um, <laughs> no problem. The, 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 um, we'll get um, it in post. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me get myself back on track here. What the heck was I talking about? Was I was going to say something so eloquent and cool. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember this whole, like going out there and talking about these things and people yell at me on the internet all the time and they say mean things about they, and they make fun of my hair and, and, uh, and my splancho cranium and, uh, and whatever else. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's a deep cut for the, uh, the, the incel watchers. Uh, the, 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 they, all that stuff, all that, I don't have to do any of this, right? I can just keep writing my little papers that nobody reads or whatever. Um, but it's like, our, I just trying to have, and I think a lot of other, I'm not alone in this by any means, anybody who's doing this kind of stuff, um, this sort of a radical recognition that that's simply not true, no, that, that we are, we are, um, participating in politics, history, heritage, national identities, ethnic identities, individual identities. These things are powerfully important to most people on the planet. And archaeology informs all of those things, um, whether in a thoughtful way or a not particularly thoughtful way. Uh, and so the idea that our work doesn't impact that stuff is, uh, is just, just not true, right? So we just have to we need to recognize that that's the case and just, um, and not everybody needs to be like a public facing person. I don't think everybody's going to comfortable doing that, nor should they be required to, but more of us need to do it. We, like, we need more archaeologist and, Carl Sagan's. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's I that would be great. Just people. Every discipline does, right? It's not not archaeology is not alone in this. We all know the best how it does that, but it's it's clearly true in other disciplines as well. Um, yeah. The the public facing aspect that you're talking about is the reason that I know both of you now. You know, like Steph, if I I learned about you from the the piece that you wrote in Sapiens, <laughs> and the and mm, Bill, mm-hmm. I learned I I was already following you on social media, but. I, you know, I like the reason I, that I really wanted to talk to you was because of your YouTube videos, you know, like the, and the way that you presented information. And I thought like, this is somebody I want to talk to. I, I, I'm pretty sure I followed Steph long before she followed me. So I was, uh, that was, uh, uh cause, uh, <laughs> that's Twitter. Oh, Twitter. Oh my God. Or whatever it is these days. The shitter, I believe you it's might called. be watching this in a month. You might be watching this in a month and you've never even heard of Twitter. And it's actually a, a crypto credit card now or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, you know, you know so your branding knows. is great when in every article that is mentioned about you present day says formerly known as. <laughs> yeah. Elon Musk has princed has princed Twitter and uh, this, um, it is uh, that's another way that this this does happen right like the, the people ask me I, I I certainly post a lot about complaining about Elon Musk and the people have asked me why do you care about that it's like well the the, the landscape of social media is really important too because again all that complexity if we want to actually do this stuff, right? We want to take the ideas that Steph and her co-authors have 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 put together and actually actualize that. You need to also understand social media. You need to also understand search engine optimization. You need to also know how to make a good a TikTok thumbnail. You need to also know it's like all this stuff that you need to know. It's hard. It's really hard, which is why I actually think collaboration is a really important impact. And that's one thing I'd like to encourage more is, is folks who want to do this kind of work. How can we share resources and help each other out and uh, mentor for people who've been doing it for a while and people who want to get into it? I don't know anything. Make, make that a pack so that when one of you gets a Netflix special, everybody comes along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're all coming on. You're all my talking heads. <laughs> when you're famous, call us up. Don't forget us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Social media does have a very powerful reach. Uh, and understanding how it works and how how it impacts us and how we can impact it or influence social media. Yeah, it, it is very powerful to know and very useful to know um, in the sense as well as like, you know, thinking of how to use it for good, but also just understanding um, how we might make mm-hmm. things worse, even when we don't intend to is is very key. So, understanding the whims um, of the algorithm. Gods. Yeah, it's a shame. It is a shame. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Understanding how, you know, algorithms work and how we might influence the algorithm in a not so great way um, sometimes. So it is really good to know. And it, it is a real shame what's happened with with Twitter, because it used to be such there used to be such a great community. There it was so great to connect with people and, and reach out. It was such a fun place. And now it's just ugh, not not so good anymore. And, and it's not especially. Good? Yeah, since Musk that- took over. Yeah, it is definitely Nazi good now. <laughs> Sadly accurate. It's true. But you know, I even think on on Twitter, I have my um, list of of people I, I observe for research, um, and you know, they used to just be confined to this list. I didn't see them and their stuff unless I was opening this list or looking at this list specifically. And now I see their tweets popping up in my timeline alongside so many different things. And it's just, that's been one of the the biggest shifts that I've, I've noticed is the 
increase of the people on the the naughty list um, popping up more often in the the mainstream spaces. It's yeah, you know that it's bad when when you're or at least I do when I'm about to do the thing that I'm going to do, which is like share a using like a use strategy for Twitter. Like that's how bad it is that you, that I feel like this is necessary, but I have all the people that I follow and I check that sometimes, but I've seen the same thing that you've seen Steph. I've seen people that come from the lists that I've made in my timeline now. And it's, it's really awful, you know, because I don't want to see that all the time. So what I've done is I set up notifications now <laughs> for just those pe- people that I actually want. It's like the people I really want to read from. So far, that's been an impenetrable mm-hmm. feed. So I just get a notification that somebody from that group has posted something. And then I click on that and I only see a timeline of the people that I've specifically requested notifications for. Yeah. But that's how bad the mm-hmm. platform is. You shouldn't yeah. have to do workarounds. <laughs> and and some and some some mm-hmm. something special is lost with that too because like you know Steph was saying before it's such a it was like such an important vibrant community mm-hmm. some of what about that was you did see perspectives that that weren't from your curated list yes. right and I know that's, that's always that's, know. that's really, really that's like the most common um, a- answer I've heard to uh, how do you you know deal with Twitter nowadays well you got to curate your list is like I used to love how. I didn't have to curate my list. And sometimes I would just see people pop up that I didn't know who they were. They might have a different experience than me. And so their perspective was was different than than I had had. And I would learn from that, even if I didn't totally agree with them, right? And so the, the toxicity of it makes it kind of impossible to treat the, the platform like that anymore. Something Something's lost there, I think. It's a, it's a bummer. I think the reason um, people are still hanging on to the driftwood of this crashed ship, is myself included, is that unlike many of the other platforms such as Facebook or Instagram or something like that, it was a combination of a community of people that you knew in some kind of a parasocial relationship and people who you didn't know in a almost like community forum kind of a thing that allowed you to connect with new people and and create uh, broader networks of parasocial relationships in, in a in a uh, dialogic kind of a way where you're, where you're not, I mean, in the case of Instagram, what am I going to communicate with you through memes? I mean, that's my love language, but that's neither hither nor thither. I, I, I can't communicate in, in a meaningful way and have an actual discourse on Facebook, uh, except with, you know, keeping in touch kind of with, um, family or friends or something like that, but I'm not reaching out beyond my real life sphere in a way that I can actually have a dialogue with communities outside of mine or within mine. Uh, and, you know, pick, pick a, pick a social media, Instagram or, or, or even TikTok. you know, you can't really have this kind of uh, interchange of ideas and discussion and communication in the community forum kind of way. And that's why it's so tough to leave it, even though it's horrendous and, <laughs> and ju- it's just, it's been on fire the whole time but we still won't get out of the house. If anybody needs them, I've got like six blue sky codes. You know, just hit me in the DMs. I got, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're migrating we're, there. I, I think all of us are on blue sky at this point, yeah. but it doesn't have the dynamism yet mm-hmm. that Twitter has. Even in its current state, there's Not still yet. much more energy on Twitter. And it's, um, I think it's going to, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I, I don't know. 
I think that thing is going to keep limping along until the last server fails. It, the, it's it's just going to stop loading one day and everybody's going to go through detox, you know, or, it, like, or Musk gets fired. Something else, I suppose that could happen to yeah. him. Anyways. <laughs> By the Saudis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I think people are hanging on to Twitter because to some degree, I think we all still mm. have hope that it'll, it'll go back That's to true. what it once was because yeah, that conversational aspect of, of Twitter is something you don't get so easily on other um, social media sites like and, and that's part of understanding as well how different social media sites work and how if you're going to use them learning how to tailor your content to to reach certain audiences or to get across on certain um make yourself successful i should say on on certain platforms um it's not a one size fits all communication or, or um way of engaging on all these different sites and so yeah twitter i i'm enjoying blue sky it's the closest mm-hmm. so far i've found to what old twitter was like but like you say yeah there's it's, there's still a few things missing um man i really want dms on right yeah Give if us there DMs. were dms um that i think I need DMs I, and, and gifts it needs gifts too. Yep, that's yeah true. honestly gifts it does too, yes. as as yes. sounds, like that's like it's kind of an important part of communication right yeah. like uh that's your 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 it's true it's true and so you know there's yeah there's something about twitter that is um different than all the other sites and i think that's why it was so successful already and it's that easy conversational aspect i think of things so yeah i think a lot of people are hanging on just hoping something will happen and we can get it back to what it used to be but i mean i don't fault anyone for leaving either there's a lot of really terrible things popping up on Twitter, which is why I get even more frustrated now when I see people I know like intentionally yeah. sharing that stuff as well. It's just like without making like a, a good critical point, it's like just stop doing that work for these people. Um, so yeah, I don't fault people for leaving. I get it. And, but I, I hope it comes back. Well, I think that that's probably a, a great, a great uh, uh, point to stop if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I mean that <laughs> talking about communication of archaeology and and the the dying world of of connecting with the humans. We'll find other ways. We always have before. We'll right. do it again. I suppose. Chain letters. But then we're gonna have to learn another damn social media site. I don't want to. My brain already hurts. I, I don't get Instagram. I don't understand it. <laughs> I feel so old when I say things like that. But it's true. <laughs> it's just pictures. What's the point? <laughs> we're going back to Live Journal. That's it. <laughs> yeah. we, we need a BBS. MySpace. My <laughs> It'll automatically start playing the worst music. I keep having people trying to get me to get to, to do uh, Tumblr. Yeah, open a Tumblr. I can't. I can't. Oh, Tumblr's yeah, coming back, blood. yeah. I think we're just going to have to go back to painting <laughs> on cave walls. Love it. 100%. The original yeah. social media. All right, so before we go, Bill, why don't you plug everything? Where are you? Oh. Where can people find you? What do you want them to see? Well, don't bother looking for me on Instagram. No, I actually do have an Instagram. But, uh, <laughs> no, the uh, first of all, most, almost everywhere, you can find me at Archaeology Tube. So uh, most, first and foremost is really YouTube. That's the only thing I really care about. Uh, I have a YouTube channel and I make videos on there about a bunch of different stuff. So uh, uh, YouTube.com slash at Archaeology Tube. Um, and that's my name at places like Blue Sky and Instagram and places like that too. Um, but if, if the exception being Twitter, on Twitter, I'm at Archaeology Game. Uh, and so I want to give that one, uh, uh, clarify that um, just because uh, that's where other, that's the other place where anybody cares what I say. So, uh, so if you wanted that, that would be the two places to, uh, to, to check me out. Archaeology tube and archaeology game. And you, Steph? 
Um, you can find me on the dredges of Twitter at uh, cult underscore Archaeo, A-R-C-H-A-E-O. Uh, and on Blue Sky, it's cult Archaeo, but there's no underscore. Um, those are the two sort of places I'm, I'm most active. Um, Instagram too, but again, Instagram is kind of hard to communicate with people. And then I have my website too, bonestonesandbooks.com, which is where I usually post links to like papers or, or presentations and, and stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah. You go. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to say the same thing. I just want to thank you both so again so much for joining us. This was an awesome conversation. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, and same here. Th- yeah, thank you very really much. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for having us. I, honestly, when I saw this new paper come out, you guys were two of oh. the first people I thought about. I was like, they're going to do an episode about this. It's kind of right up your alley. I mean, we can't not do it with Graham Hancock involved and, you know, pseudo-archaeology. It's, uh, we can't We not have our fingers on stuff. the pulse. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you. That's right. You're pioneers prepared. of silly you know ideas. It is true. And you are prepared that is something to manage that it. I, I will definitely accept that I, I am aware of many of those red flags. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me as well. And, and, and it was really great to get to meet you too, Steph. As, uh, as I said, I think off off mic before we started that I've uh, sort of followed your work for quite a while and uh, and I was excited to get to, 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 to <laughs> chat with you a little bit. So great conversation. Thank you all for having me too. We're just bringing people together. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Going from parasocial to semi-parasocial, right. maybe. Perfect. To semi-social. That's right. we'll, 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 we'll connect at an actual conference, and then we'll go to just social. That'll be nice. <laughs> we'll yep. meet at the, yep. the, the next uh, uh, Histories day. Mysteries uh, tour. Or, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ancient Aliens That's tour. right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. Or if we finally go infiltrate oh, yeah. the Aquarian Foundation. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not that far from each other. Yeah. Make it happen, right? <laughs> What's that cosmic group? They have they have the Graham Hancock as the right. They have the uh, the, the talk every year where they've got bright insights. Graham Hancock. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Field trip. Just- I think they <laughs> just had one of those. Actually, I think one of those <laughs> events just happened. They're like six hundred bucks though, so we're gonna Ooh, need to we're gonna need to call up the ball and have them send us an extra check. Hey, we definitely yeah. need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank thanks again, everybody. <laughs> thanks you too. Thank you. Bye. Great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That is going to be it for us today. Thanks everyone for listening. And as always, a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Thank you for your love. You make this possible for sure. I don't know. We probably do it for free, but it's nice to pay some of the bills. Yeah, (laughs) we're 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 not we're not close to breaking even, (laughs) but it's nice. And if you want to help us to keep releasing great episodes like this and having these awesome conversations, you can always help us spread the word. You can tweet about it. You can clip it for TikTok. If anyone still uses Facebook, post it there. Anything really helps. Of course, we're we're at WetWiredPod on Shitter and Instagram. And we've got our Discord, so you can always uh, find us there. And that link will be in the episode description. I also, about the Discord, I just realized that the auto-posting bot that we had installed that republished everything that we posted on the Wetwired Twitter account is no longer working and it hasn't been for a few months. Um, I don't, I have not been keeping tabs on it to know that it was broken. And I guess it was some change that was made at, on the Twitter oh, side of things. probably from the API. I think that they might have gotten rid of the it API. It was probably from that. So the uh, so that is not a functioning thing. So we're going to figure something else out. Jules, anything else? Uh, well, just uh, have a fun time. <laughs>
don't right. know that. I don't have anything else. <laughs> Wise last words from Jules. All right. We'll see you all next time. Later, skaters. At the end of the last ice age, sea levels were as much as 300 plus feet lower than they are today. So at that time, this structure would have been above sea level. It would have been, at that time, dry land. Could the massive underwater structure, known as Yonaguni, really be the remnants of an advanced civilization that existed here on Earth more than 10,000 years ago? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes, and claim that further evidence can be found in Polynesian stories of a long-lost continent called Mu. This lost continent of Mu was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it encompassed Hawaii and Tahiti, Tonga and Samoa, and even Easter Island were all part of this lost continent of Mu. While most conventional scholars dismiss the story of Mu as being mythology, ancient astronaut theorists suggest an enormous new discovery in Southeast Asia could provide irrefutable evidence that this lost civilization did, in fact, exist. West Java, Indonesia. Located in Karyamukti village is a mysterious site called Ganong Padang, or Mountain of Enlightenment. For thousands of years, the local population revered Ganong Padang as a sacred site and many came here to meditate among the giant stone blocks. But in 1914, Dutch explorers discovered that the basalt columns scattered across the hilltop are not natural features at all. They are, in fact, fragments of an ancient megalithic site. A century later, in 2013, the Indonesian government sponsored an excavation to see if anything was hidden beneath the layers of dirt and rubble. What they found was evidence that suggests Ganong Padang is the world's oldest steppe pyramid. According to geologists, 20,000 years ago, Java, where Ganong Padang is located, was not an isolated island, but the southernmost part of a subcontinent known as Sundaland. This has led some researchers to speculate that Ganong Padang, with its high elevation, could have been at the pinnacle of a civilization that disappeared sometime around 10,000 BC, when melting ice caps flooded the region and turned it into the series of islands it is today. The compelling suggestion is that there was some sort of civilization here before this flood took place, that they built this with advanced technology and therefore, they were extraterrestrial visitors to the Earth. And that's why archaeologists are not finding the evidence that we would normally expect to see showing a geometric progression of technology leading up to the ability to build a gigantic pyramid well over 12,000 years ago.